Hello and welcome to Video Zone once again. Now the last couple of episodes I've talked about Galaxina and then I talked about Lucas. You know, these are feature films, but today I think I'm going to do something a little different and talk about home music videos. Now the thing with home music videos is that most of them only really cater to big fans of the band and they're often disappointing because not all bands can be the Beatles and act and sing and dance and do everything. They're musicians at the end of the day, but because of MTV they had to run around doing music videos and home videos and then press junkets and winning meaningless fucking MTV awards to feed the ravenous intermediate appetite of the public, which now in the age of the Kardashians seems to have turned into an addiction to celebrity voyeurism. Speaking of voyeurism, in 1992 Prince followed up Diamonds and Pearls with an album commonly titled Love Symbol, which refers to that unpronounceable androgynous thing he changed his name to a couple of years after this album came out. Now the album has its high points. I personally really dig Love to the Nines and The Morning Papers and My Name is Prince, but none of these are more dance worthy than Sexy Motherfucker or Sexy MF, cautious Walmart title. It's a back-to-basics funk fest to end all funk fests, and he raps it. Now, it took Prince a while to warm to hip-hop. As a multi-instrumentalist, you can understand why he didn't quite respect the idea of sampling the funk music that he grew up with and then just rapping atonally over the top. But uh, as soon as he got with the NPG, a full band with a horn section, he found an end to rap, you know, fuck sampling. He made his own beats from scratch, performed them with a tight band, and would splice raps into that every so often. Now, the sexy motherfucker music video is uh, really something to behold. The gangsters, played by various members of the NPG, are playing poker in a parking garage while their bored girlfriends sit around looking beautiful and bored. Just then, an entourage of cars pulls up, and out of the front one steps tiny little prince with a gold microphone, points at the women and says, get in the car. When the gangsters verbally object, prince sings them a song about a sexy motherfucker, and then when he's done, he steals their women and calls the police on them, as you do. I'm sure you can find it online, and you will ask these same questions. What the fuck is he wearing? Why are all those gangsters playing poker in a parking building? Does Prince do this every night? Just rock up to some gangsters with his entourage of like part-time rappers and they sing a song and steal all the gangsters' women and then call the cops on them if they object, you know? Don't get me wrong, I'm laughing my balls off as I watch this video, but I still don't know if I'm laughing with Prince or at him and his naivety and weird sense of morals. But uh, even more perplexing are two commercials that follow the music video. Both made again by Paisley Park slash Prince. Made again, I I assume, at Paisley Park. One is for the Love Symbol album, which has the distinction of never mentioning the title, which is probably why it didn't do that well. You know, part of the reason that he didn't do that well when he changed his name to that is because no one could say it, you know? No one's talking about him because no one knows what to fucking say. But the other commercial is uh, striking in that it's for the debut album of the then Prince protege, Carmen Electra. Not many people know that she started out not as a Playboy model, but as Prince's new happening singer slash incredibly gorgeous woman, who he had quite a few of over the years. 
Now, this commercial is also striking in the sense that the voiceover is something I'm going to just have to play you. You're going to need to hear it to believe it, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice. And you'll hear why right now. She is the scariest female on the planet. She is inevitable. She is addictive. To listen to her music on a loud system is to come a thousand times. Carmen, Electra, Paisley Park, CD and cassette. See, coming from me, that just wouldn't sound quite right. Now, he also made an accompanying film to the album, a full length. But Warner Brothers at that time had had just about enough of Prince as a whole and in general, but especially as a filmmaker. Purple Rain was mercifully directed by someone else, and as a result, it was actually pretty good. But since then, he'd taken over the director's chair and said, ah, ah, fuck it, I'll start writing my own screenplays too, you know, while I'm at it. Schmorson Wells, fuck that. I got an Oscar. <laughs> I got an Oscar, motherfucker. I can be a filmmaker too. And so by Sign of the Times, he was shooting them all at his uh, rather ramshackle Paisley Park Studios in sunny Minneapolis. It looked like a bad TV studio. Like everything he shot there kind of looked like an episode of like Red Shoe Diaries or something. And even I have to admit to never seeing Three Chains of Gold myself. I think that's the test. If you're really a Prince fan, you will sit through that horse shit. Sexy Motherfucker, on the other hand, is way more widely available. I happen to have two copies at home, so he must have made more than he needed. And it just has an endearing quality to it, you know. Even then, only Prince could get away with that, and only barely. You know, not long after this, it was a wrap for Prince. And he went off the radar, you know, he was no longer on Warner Brothers. They, I, th I think they had the rights to his name. Like, he couldn't even release music as Prince for a time there. Which might have had something to do with why he signed back with Warner Brothers. To retain the use of his God-given Christian name. He was also welcomed to Jehovah by, uh, uh, interestingly, interestingly by Larry Graham, the bass player for Sly and the Family Stone. Who had become a, a, a good friend and kind of a father figure to Prince. And so Prince became a Jehovah's Witness and actually did go around knocking on doors and trying to sell people books and stuff. He was that into it. Louder Than Live captures Soundgarden in 1989, about halfway along their rise to fame, and coincides with their first major label release, Louder Than Love, on A&M. This is also before Seattle bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were having giant hits, Meanwhile, Soundgarden were one of the pioneering grunge bands out of Seattle and were hugely influential to those bands and others and also had received their first Grammy nomination for their debut album, Ultra Meager OK, one year before that, 1988. So in Louder Than Live, we get a nice glimpse of grunge before it became a household name as Soundgarden played to a packed-out crowd at the iconic Whiskey A Go-Go, home to LA luminaries like Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Guns N' Roses in the early days. The set is great for a Soundgarden fan. Plenty of tracks off Louder Than Love, and they also do a medley of Earache My Eye by Cheech and Chong and Big Bottom by Spinal Tap. But if you're a more casual appreciator of the band, it's a little hard to watch. Not only is it in grainy black and white, but the frame rate's deliberately low, so half the time I'm not sure if I'm looking at Chris Cornell or a drum kit. I think it's trying to emulate the style of Charles Peterson's photography of the Seattle grunge scene from the early days. The cover photo is in fact a shot by Charles Peterson of Chris Cornell, 
I think circa 87, but the style doesn't quite translate to video, especially as shot by a lesser talent than the real Charles Peterson. And after the set, we get to enjoy two almost identical music videos from Soundgarden, Loud Love and Hands All Over. Clearly they had a big room, some cameras, and some bad stage lights for one day and made the most of them. Very of its time, and sadly lacking the visual prowess of a Kurt Cobain among the Soundgarden boys, which I think contributed to the success of Smells Like Teen Spirit. You know, Kurt had a very bright idea of what to do for a music video and it paid off. A dark dystopian high school hall full of stupid frenzied teenagers to a song that seems to capture their apathy and reflect what's going on perfectly. Now to be fair, Soundgarden made a bunch of great videos later. Rusty Cage, and then of course Black Hole Sun, and the music videos for Down on the Upside were all tremendous too. And I actually looked up the guy who shot Louder Than Live, Kevin Kerslake, and he turns out to have a pretty impressive CV also. He rode that whole 90s alternative wave and made videos for Faith No More, The Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Stone Temple Pilots. His CV is a whole who's who of all the bands I was really into as an adolescent. In Louder Than Live, Soundgarden are on their way to modest success, but they're not quite there yet, so their record company's obviously trying to boost them with this promo video. Whereas in Sexy Motherfucker, Prince is nearing the end of his run as a huge successful pop star, and he's decided to try and produce videos as well as music far away from his label in LA. And the results of the two are fairly similar. Not all they could be, but fascinating VHS artifacts nonetheless. And that's it from me. Don't miss next week. Which video will I wax philosophical about next? Don't adjust your set. It's video zone.